Last Sunday, we took a break from our sermon series through the book of the prophet Jonah to have a Reformation Day sermon. Uh, This morning, we are still away from the book of Jonah as we enter into this time of stewardship season. And so uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the gospel according to Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, as we consider what kingdom-minded giving looks like. Before we turn to God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let us turn to the Lord to ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his word by the same spirit who breathed it out. Let's pray together. Creator God, you remind us that the darkness of ignorance and doubt cannot overcome your life-giving word. May your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of Scripture, shine your light and once again awaken us to the hearing and living of this radiant truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Hear the word of God, it is written. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. How we handle the resources that have been entrusted to us is a very serious spiritual matter. And it is a serious spiritual matter, not because, as some have tried to claim, that Jesus speaks more about money than any other topic, as though the simple frequency of mention of money equates to a high level of importance. Does Jesus speak of money? Yes. Does he speak frequently of money? Yes. Does that mean that this is one of the most important things Jesus addressed? Not necessarily, because here's the catch. Just because money is mentioned in a parable or teaching of Jesus doesn't necessarily mean the money is really the focus of that parable or teaching. For example, the parable of the lost coin, the parable in which a woman had 10 silver coins and loses one and proceeds to search every crack and crevice of her house until she finds it. Is that parable really about money? Is the point of the parable to be sure to handle your money carefully, to keep it safe? No, of course it isn't. It is told with two other parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the prodigal son, which also includes some mention of money. But those three parables aren't about money at all. They are about God's graciousness to seek out and save the lost. And how God is glorified in our salvation about how much rejoicing there is in heaven when a sinner is saved. 
So we should be careful to we should be careful to say that just because money is mentioned 11 out of the 39 parables as some do that it is one if not the most important topic about which Jesus spoke. We don't want to give the topic of money a false spiritual importance or approach it wrongly. But Jesus spoke of money even beyond the parables, and we might think immediately of the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10 who was commanded by Jesus to sell all of his possessions and give the money to the poor. But again, is the point of the story really about money? And if so, is Jesus teaching his disciples that they are forbidden from having material possessions or from acquiring wealth? Well, if that's the case, then, then how do we explain the story of Zacchaeus, another story in which money is discussed? Uh, Zacchaeus declares to Jesus in Luke 19, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Did, does Jesus respond to Zacchaeus saying, Well, that isn't good enough, Zacchaeus. You must sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor. No, Jesus' response to Zacchaeus was, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus commended Zacchaeus for volunteering to give away half of his goods to the poor. And before we get the wrong idea, we should note that salvation wasn't coming to Zacchaeus because of what he had given. His giving wasn't earning him salvation. Rather, his giving was the fruit and the evidence of his salvation. This is what Jesus meant when he proclaimed that salvation had come to Zacchaeus' house. And we're beginning to get the picture here. But if Jesus was pleased with Zacchaeus giving away half of his possessions, then why would Jesus seem to require the rich young ruler to give away all of his possessions unless unless it really wasn't about money so much as something else. So coming back to the story of the rich young ruler, what that young man wanted to know was how he could inherit eternal life. And Jesus told him to obey the commandments. The, the young man, feeling very self-righteous, responded that he had obeyed the commandments. This was the point at which Jesus gave his instruction to go and to sell all that he had and to give his money to the poor. Was money really the issue? Was all that was keeping the man from eternal life in the, the joy of God's presence money? No, that isn't the point of the story. The point was that Jesus was putting God's perfect standard of righteousness up against the human standard of what is considered good. Had the, the man really kept God's law? No. He, he hadn't perfectly kept God's law. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, which means none are worthy to stand before God's presence. The, the young man might not have murdered anyone, but Jesus was using the man's love of money to point out that the man hadn't really obeyed the positive aspect of that commandment, which was to love his neighbors as himself, to seek their good 
He wasn't willing to share out of his abundance to provide for the needs of others. And he wasn't really loving God the way that he should either. He was just checking boxes of outward obedience. And Jesus was pointing out that we can convince ourselves that we have kept the law, that we are righteous even if we have failed miserably to obey it, which means that we are all guilty before a righteous God. The disciples recognize the significance of this point, which is why the disciples will, a few verses later, ask Jesus, well, who then can be saved? And the answer is no one. No one can be saved through their own efforts. But what is impossible for man is possible with God. You see, Jesus was challenging all of them to stop placing their trust in their own good works and finding their security in worldly things and to instead follow after him. The issue wasn't about money primarily. The issue was valuing Jesus above all worldly things. The issue was about following hard after Jesus and finding salvation and life in him. That is the true issue. And so if there's a topic that dominates Jesus' teachings, it's this, discipleship to Jesus Christ. Coming into relationship with Jesus, learning to trust Jesus, learning to to lean on Jesus, learning to, to love what Jesus loves, learning to follow in the way of Jesus. This is what dominated Jesus' teachings. Money is just one aspect of discipleship therefore if there's a reason why God, why a godly view and use of our financial resources is important it's that because we want to know what it means to follow Jesus and to live as citizens of his kingdom how do we do that with our money it isn't because of how frequently money is mentioned I don't think any of us would say that because Jesus mentions money more than prayer, that money is more spiritually important. That's not it. Rather, what we do with our financial resources is important because if we are truly followers of Jesus, then we should desire to love God above all else and in following after Jesus, submit every aspect of our lives to his lordship. As followers of Jesus, we should desire to bring every aspect of our lives into conformity with the values of his kingdom. And that includes our use of financial resources. An overarching lesson that Jesus was teaching over and over again was that the the values of his kingdom are different than the values of this world. And not only different, but the values of God's kingdom completely flipped the values of this world on their head. We know this, right? In Jesus' kingdom, the least are the greatest. In in Jesus' kingdom, the great among us are those not who are served, but those who willingly serve others. In Jesus' kingdom, qualities like meekness and gentleness and generosity are exalted. Life in God's kingdom requires a different framework, a different mindset, and this includes how we are to view money and material possessions. It it isn't simply about checking boxes and outward righteousness. 
And this is exactly what's happening in this story of the poor widow, who Jesus lifts as an example of kingdom-minded giving, and through whom the world's views of money are flipped on their head. You see, as Jesus sat at the temple on that particular day, probably in what was known as the court of women, which was the area of the temple in which women and children would worship, he watched as people came forward and and dropped their offering in, in what is translated here in Mark's gospel as the offering box. According to Jewish tradition, there were 13 shofar chests in the temple, which served as receptacles for offerings. And and as the name implies, these shofar chests were shaped like the ram's horns that were used as trumpets with the the tapered end up to prevent theft and and where one would deposit their offering into the chest. Each chest was marked for a specific type of offering. There was one, for instance, in which money was placed by those who were coming to purchase doves as a burnt offering and a sin offering. Another one was for those who wanted to to give to the upkeep of the Holy of Holies. Another one was for guilt offerings, so on and so forth. The one that Jesus sat across from was probably the one in which free will offerings were given. And Jesus observed this woman come forward and put two small copper coins, two lepta, which are the smallest coins were the smallest coins, the least valuable coins in circulation. And yet, even as Mark tells us that many rich people had come and placed large sums of money in this chest, the widow is the one Jesus commended to his disciples. She was the one who was the example of kingdom-minded giving. And in commending her to them, he is commending her to us. So we are to learn from her about how we are to view giving from a kingdom-minded perspective. And this morning, I want to lift up four simple principles of kingdom-minded giving as we consider how we are to give of our financial resources as followers of Jesus Christ. These four principles are that kingdom-minded giving is sacrificial. It is discreet. It is founded upon a deep sense of love and devotion to the Lord, and it flows from a deep gratitude to God. So first, kingdom-minded giving is sacrificial. It is sacrificial. Now, we don't need to know much of the context here or to be Greek scholars to, to realize that what this woman gave was not very significant from a worldly perspective. Mark converts the amount of these two copper coins for his Roman audience to the equivalent Roman coin, which is translated into our English as a penny. Uh, But in one sense, it's a little unfair to think of what the woman gave as only a penny. In reality, these coins were equivalent to one-sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius, as many of you know, was a daily wage for most common laborers. So if we're thinking about that from today's standard, someone working an eight-hour day making minimum wage would make around $60. One sixty-fourth of that would be more like 90 pennies than one penny. 
Thinking of it as a penny, though, perhaps helps us to consider the worldly insignificance of this offering, though, and that is the real point here. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever dropped a penny and not even bothered to pick it up? Anybody ever done that? Or maybe I should ask it this way. When was the last time you went to the trouble to pick up a penny that you dropped? We don't view a penny as worthy of our time and effort to pick up. And, and no one who watched this woman place that money in the chest that day would have been impressed in the least by her offering. From a worldly perspective, it was completely insignificant. But Jesus delighted in it. As Reformed theologian and author R. Kent Hughes paints the scene, when the widow passed by, Jesus was inwardly up on his feet, applauding with all he had. She was a rare flower in the desert of devotion. She was beautiful and aromatic, and she brought great cheer to the heart of Jesus. Now, I personally think that Hughes isn't embellishing in the least how Jesus felt about this woman's gift. But why would he be excited over something so insignificant, something which would have little to no felt impact at the temple, especially when there were others who were giving large sums of money? And we don't need to be a Greek scholar to see this either. The reason for this was that Jesus wasn't as concerned with the amount of the gift as he was concerned with its cost to the giver. The emphasis wasn't on the specific amount of her giving, but it was on the greatness of her sacrifice. And what Jesus tells his disciples about the widow's giving was that she had not given out of her abundance, but had given out of her poverty. And not only that, she had given all she had to live on. From the world's perspective, this might have been a small and insignificant gift, but from Jesus' perspective, according to his kingdom's values, it was a great and costly gift, much more significant than what the others had given. This is the same kind of giving that Paul commends to the church in Corinth. Commenting on the giving of the churches in Macedonia, he says, In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What a remarkable thing to consider that even in severe affliction, these churches in Macedonia had given of themselves even beyond their means because they counted it such a great privilege to be able to give of themselves in this way. That is sacral. That is sacrificial giving, dearly beloved. It isn't giving that is greedy or stingy, but it is costly and generous. It is giving that isn't concerned with as much with quantity as it is with the quality of the gift. So as Sinclair Ferguson notes, our giving is to be measured by proportion, not by addition. The, the woman gave more because she gave everything she had. Two pence out of two pence is a factor of one. 
1,000 out of 10,000 is a factor of one-tenth. This woman gave what probably amounted to her entire wage for the day. It was all that she had to buy food or to provide for her other needs. And so while her giving wasn't significant from a worldly perspective, it was incredibly significant from a spiritual perspective. It held nothing back from the Lord. Now, this isn't to say that we're called to give everything we have. That's not the lesson here. This woman probably didn't do this often. She was making a special offering for the, festi- the, the Passover festival. But it does mean that our giving to the Lord should not be approached in a way that is thoughtless or stingy. Sometimes the easy thing is just to pick a percentage of our income or a hard number and to go with it, rather than truly prayerfully considering what it is that we are really called to give. That is to say, it's easy to go with 10% of our income because that's the percentage that the Bible gives to us as a tithe. But here's the reality. For someone who is making little, who is living paycheck to paycheck, 10% might be a tremendous sacrifice. That person might have to consider what things will be cut from the monthly budget to make ends meet. For someone making much, though, 10% might simply be coming out of his abundance. It it might require no real sacrifice. It, It might be income that isn't missed in the least bit. Or it might be a consideration of whether vacation this year is six days rather than eight. In presenting this woman to us, Jesus assesses our giving and challenges us to consider who is giving more, the person who out of his abundance gives 10% or the person who out of his poverty gives 10%. So we need to understand that as scripture presents it to us, 10%, the the tithe, is not the final goal of our giving. In the economy of God's kingdom, it is the starting point of our giving. Let those who have ears hear. Second, kingdom-minded giving is discreet. It's discreet. When we look at the full context of this passage, we find that the widow isn't simply being compared to the rich who were giving large sums of money. She is also being compared to the scribes. If we go up just a few verses, we find a a, a warning from Jesus to his disciples to beware of the scribes who are described by Jesus in this way, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. The scribes are described as pompous and pretentious. Uh, They live their lives in such a way to show themselves off, to to show off their wealth and their prestige. They, They wanted others to see them and be impressed by them. Well, this is the way of the world, isn't it? Consider this. Would charities raise the amount of money they do if all the giving was anonymous? Would they? If there was no public recognition, if there was no platinum, gold, and silver level giving with names prominently displayed on some sort of sign or program or or website, 
Perhaps I'm wrong about it, but it seems that people, at least some people, give money primarily to showcase how much they have and what kind of person they are, to, to garner favor in the eyes of the world. They want others to be impressed with the size of their donation. The, the reward for this type of giving is the praise of men. But that isn't what kingdom-minded giving is after. Kingdom-minded giving is done out of a desire simply to honor and glorify God. The widow then stands as an example against the scribes. Her giving wasn't for show. It wasn't to gain favor among men. In fact, there's no evidence that she even knew that Jesus was watching her or that she received any sort of blessing of knowing on this side of eternity what Jesus thought of her giving that day. She wasn't giving as to be seen or to have others impressed at just how wonderful she was. She had a very pure motive for giving. So we're being taught here that wealth is to be handled in a way that isn't flaunted. Giving is to be done quietly. Jesus gives the same instruction about giving to the needy in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, beware of practicing righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Therefore, dearly beloved, our giving should be discreet. Third, kingdom-minded giving is founded upon a deep sense of love and devotion to the Lord. It's founded upon a deep sense of love and devotion to the Lord. In thinking about the contrast between the widow and the scribes and understanding the discretion of the woman's gift, we're challenged to consider her motive. The scribes had a sham righteousness, but what would cause someone to give such a generous and costly gift? And while the human heart is a complex thing, motivated by different things, sometimes simultaneously, I think Jesus is presenting us with an obvious answer. We are to give in heartfelt devotion to him. He's teaching us here that the posture of our hearts makes all the difference. Paul told the Corinthians that this was the case with the Macedonian churches. They they didn't give begrudgingly. They didn't give in a stingy manner. No, they, they gave eagerly, sacrificially, generously, joyfully. Why? Because they deeply and sincerely loved the Lord Jesus. They were devoted to him. Paul says that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. In their love and devotion to the Lord, they they cared about seeking first his kingdom. They were far more interested in seeing God's kingdom built and succeed in this world than building up their own little kingdoms. And if you don't think that the posture of your heart makes all the difference, let me ask you this. Have you ever written a check to the IRS? Anybody in here do that willingly and cheerfully? (laughs) Did you desire to give more than they required? Anybody? 
Were you excited about building up their kingdom? No, of course you didn't. If you've ever written a check to the IRS, it was done begrudgingly and under compulsion and the threat of freezing or seizing your assets or time in prison. But does the IRS care that you gave money begrudgingly? No, they couldn't care less. But it's not so with the Lord. He cares deeply about the posture of your heart in your giving. And here's the reality, the Lord doesn't need your money, doesn't need it. He, he can very much accomplish his purposes without your help. And, and that isn't to dismiss the reality that he has ordained to work through us. So our works are both completely unnecessary, that's the grace of God, and used by God to bring about his purposes. But God makes clear that he doesn't want our sacrifices when they come in an empty way, when they, they come thoughtlessly, prayerlessly, unintentionally, in a stingy manner, begrudgingly. He wants our heartfelt devotion. He wants our full commitment. So we must be careful not to present sacrifices to the Lord simply as some heartless ritual in which we try to gain favor before the Lord. Dearly beloved, our motivations matter. Don't give to the Lord as you give to the IRS. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And if we are truly loving God with all that we are, then we will desire to invest financially in his kingdom. Jesus said that where our treasure is, there will be our heart also. How much you value God's kingdom will demonstrate your love for him. Fourth and finally, the kingdom-minded giving flows from a deep sense of gratitude to the Lord. It flows from a deep sense of gratitude to the Lord. This story of the widow marks the end of Jesus' public ministry in Mark's gospel. And in many ways, it is a perfect conclusion. As the widow's sacrificial giving of herself points forward to the way in which Jesus will give himself as a sacrificial offering on the cross. Nothing, nothing will be held back. Jesus will give his very life as an atonement for sin. Jesus then appoints his disciples here to this widow, telling him that they too must follow in this way. As Jesus calls the disciples to himself in this passage, he is saying, this is what it looks like to come and follow me. What began in the beginning of Mark's gospel with this call that Jesus gave to these very same fishermen ends here with a nameless widow giving to Lepta. And the lesson is clear. Discipleship is a process of dying to ourselves by daily picking up our cross and following Jesus in faith with the entirety of our being. Brothers and sisters, he doesn't want just one piece of you. He didn't die on the cross to be at the periphery of your life. He wants to be your focus. He wants to be the center. And so as one commentary commentator notes in various ways the disciples were to give all their all as the widow did but there is an additional lesson in the account the sacrificial gift of the widow points to the sacrificial gift of Jesus she gave her entire livelihood he gave his very life 
As the Apostle Paul put it, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So as we consider how to make Jesus the center of our lives, as we consider how to follow after him in every aspect of our lives through faith, including our giving, we must consider his great sacrifice for us. Why is Jesus worthy of your all? Because God did not withhold the most precious thing from us. God gave us the gift of his only son who for our sake became poor that we might through him become rich. The one who suffered and died that he might be for us a substitutionary sacrifice. He took on himself our sin and gave to us his righteousness. And in doing so, he made a way for us into God's presence through faith in him. That is what the rich young ruler was after. This is what Zacchaeus had found. And we're called to respond to this amazing grace as Zacchaeus did with joyful thanksgiving. His heart his giving flowed from a heart which had been radically transformed by encountering Jesus and all of his grace and power. If we have encountered Jesus in this way, then we too will live our lives out of a deep sense of gratitude to a Savior who died for us even while we were yet sinners to reconcile us to God. Our lives will be radically transformed, and so will how we view and use our financial resources. Brothers and sisters, what a wonderful thing for us to consider as we begin this Thanksgiving season, as we entrust ourselves to God, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift, as we meditate on all the blessings the Lord has placed in our lives, especially the gift of his very son. Let us respond to God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. Let us give sacrificially. Let us give discreetly. Let us give with a, a deep love and devotion to the Lord. Let our giving flow from a heart filled with gratitude to God. And may God receive all the glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for your many gifts to us, especially the gift of your only son and we acknowledge before you that we are unworthy of your love of your care and yet you have chosen to love us and shower us with your blessings lord help us to respond gratefully to your amazing grace help us to use well that which you have given to us help us to be good stewards wise managers of these gifts seeking to use them to bring you glory for we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Philippian creed from Philippian, Philippians chapter 2. Believer, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.